Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I am one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Mahoney. Thanks for joining us today, Mahoney. Mahoney is another one of my good friends from college. Uh, he currently curls and conveniently also likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz. This week, the first round will have two questions and the second round will have four questions. In the end, we'll tally up the points from the last three weeks to determine who is the Back to the Future trilogy champion. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's episode concludes the trilogy, and KJ actually preferred to do Back to the Future 3 over the other two movies. Amazingly, this adventure sci-fi film was also directed by Robert Zemeckis. He is also known for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Castaway, and the other two Back to the Future films. Back to the Future Part 3 came out in 1990, only eight months after Back to the Future 2, with other movies such as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a childhood favorite of mine, Home Alone, another favorite of mine, and another movie that takes place in the 1800s, Dances with Wolves. KJ, why was this your preferred movie? And tell us a little bit about the plot line. So Back to the Future Part 3, again, starts right where the previous movie ended. Marty and 55 Doc realize 85 Doc is stuck in 1885. 55 Doc rigs a time machine left by 85 Doc for 80 years in a cave to allow Marty to time travel again. Instead of going to 1985, Marty decides to swing by 1885 to pick up the Doc and Griff Tannen once again slows down their time travel plans. While in 1885, Marty has to confront his psychological problems introduced in Back to the Future 2, which include being okay with people calling him chicken. Doc falls in love, and has to decide between his brain and his heart. So in the first movie, the main conflict was trying to find 1.21 gigawatts to get the DeLorean to time travel. In the second movie, the main conflict was Biff's sports almanac causing chaos. And in this movie, the main conflict is they ran out of gas and they need to get the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour. So I mentioned in the Back to the Future 2 episode that I remember renting Back to the Future 2 with my cousins. I also think we rented Back to the Future 3 on that same trip. Um, I love this movie as a conclusion to the trilogy, and I think it would be tough to watch Back to the Future 2 without watching Back to the Future 3. I think the first movie is the best in the trilogy by far, but Back to the Future 3 is much, much, much better than Back to the Future 2 and is a great way to end the trilogy. How about you, Tom? What do you think? I agree that Back to the Future 3 is much, much better than Back to the Future 2. I'm sure that most people would. I, I have to say, after doing this three weeks in a row, I I'm kind of exhausted by Back to the Future. <laughs> I, was, I, I watched this movie yesterday at like seven in the morning to nine in the morning or something after and before work, and... Uh, yeah, I, I was sort of I, I was sort of exhausted by this film, and I think it's just because because of the trilogy. And I, I will say though that I think this film is the most Back to the Futury of them, in the sense that 
what the trajectory of the films are doing in terms of their relationship to to cinema and past cinema is more fully realized in this picture than in past pictures. So for that reason, I think it, it might actually be the most interesting in some ways of the trilogy, even though I enjoyed the first one more. How about you, Nick? What did you think? Well, I will say I, I was happy we rewatched all these movies. It's been quite some time since I've seen all of them. And I was thinking back to specifically Back to the Future 3, which I have seen more than two, although one I've seen the most. I hadn't probably seen it since somewhere around the college years, which for me was quite some time ago. And I was looking forward to it because I, I did have better memories of it than two. And what I will say is the slower pace, I felt there was a slower pace in this movie and it was welcomed after the chaos that was episode two, I mean, or part two. It, it, it brought it back to literally simpler times so that we could see the really the, the, the functionality of the time machine, not only going back to a set period, but even going further back. So I did enjoy it. And I was glad I rewatched it. There were a lot of things that I am looking forward to talking about with this movie. And again, Back to Future never disappoints with its various tie-ins from the prior films in this case. So those are always fun to explore as well. But that, that was my thoughts. I'm happy I rewatched the whole trilogy. Uh, to Tom's thoughts, I think it's probably good to say that I, I don't need to rewatch this trilogy for quite some time again, but I'm glad I, I did explore it. Uh, Mahoney, we're going to turn this one over to you. What are your thoughts on Back to the Future 3? Uh, so a, a little bit by coincidence, before I had even been invited to come on the podcast, I was sitting on my sofa one night after a Zoom call. I had a couple too many beers. I was flipping through Netflix, and I actually turned on Back to the Future 3. I, I probably hadn't seen the movie for, I don't know, 10 years or so, but it's always had a soft spot in my heart. I don't think anybody on the planet disagrees that the first is the best. Um, and then second was just kind of this weird 1980s version of what the 2000s is supposed to look like. And it got panned hard. And then since three followed so closely on its heels, I feel like they kind of get lumped together unfairly. And it, it's always, you know, I was a big fan of Westerns when I was a kid because my grandfather watched them and my dad watched them. So the fact that this had kind of a Western theme always appealed to me. Plus, it's easy watching, I guess would be the phrase, in that, you know, it's got uh, a little bit of a love story. It's got a little bit of action. It's got, a, you know, a little humor. It's got Michael J. Fox trying to do an Irish accent. It's got really everything you kind of hope for. So I, I really think it, it gets a bad rap. So for that reason, I, I'm, I'm always excited, you know, kind of when I can catch a few minutes of it or, or watch it, and I'm glad that, you know, I was able to, and now I caught up on the whole trilogy uh, preparing for this. But like I said, you know, I, I think people need to give that movie more of a chance than they do. Well, hopefully after this episode, they will. Now, of course, we always ask the guests a critical question. What would be the best snack to enjoy while watching Back to the Future 3? So this probably wouldn't be movie theater sanctioned, um, but I recommend, since it is a Western and given what, uh, you know, the, the scene with Doc there towards the end, perhaps a small glass of whiskey. And uh, if you're hungry, perhaps some, uh, some beef jerky, I think would go well with that. That actually does sound like it would be perfect for this movie. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to KJ shortly. 
But as we are covering the entire Back to the Future trilogy, we thought we'd make it a little bit more interesting by keeping a running tally of points in which each co-host will be facing off against the collective power of our guest. To make things obnoxiously fair, each host had a buddy guest with whom they shared points. You still have to trust me. The math works. Tom's buddy is this week's guest, Mahoney. My buddy was last week's guest, and KJ's buddy was the first week's guest. And KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you for the conclusion of the Back to the Future trilogy. It's time for Movie Quiz. All right, we're heading into round one. We will have two questions for round one. Each will be worth one point. And these questions may be a bit more specific than the questions in our last two episodes. I had all these questions written down before we had recorded any of the Back to the Future episodes. Um, the second round should lighten up a little bit, but just a heads up, co-hosts, we'll see how we do. Um, so as I had mentioned in the last episode, I feel that the first movie is Marty's movie. The second movie is Biff's movie. And I think this third movie is Dr. Emmett Brown's movie. So this round is dedicated to him. The categories are The Other Great Mystery of the Universe and Infernal Machine. So Mahoney, how would you like to begin? Uh, I'll take Infernal Machine, please. It's time for question one. At the end of the movie, the doc shows up in a new time machine that runs on steam. What does the doc say when Marty asks why he built another time machine? I'm going to lock in. I'm going to lock in and apologize to Tom. I'm going to apologize to our listeners. I think I'll apologize to the world. <laughs> Locked in. All right, Tom, what did the doc say? He says that the future is not yet written. And so he creates, I don't remember his exact words, but he creates um, the time machine to, to you know, explore these different universes because you know, regardless of what he does, it is still yet unscripted. Yeah, he pretty much said that the future is unwritten, like Tom said, and that it hasn't been decided yet. I don't necessarily understand if that's why he built the time machine, though. Um, I know that's the point of the clip, but the only thing I can remember him saying is that their future still is yet to be determined. Uh, I, I remember him saying the future is unwritten, but I thought the reason he created the time machine was he wanted to let Marty know that he was okay. All right. So we might go subjective on this one. Um, one of the things he says is you can't keep a good scientist down. <laughs> so even though Doc understands how dangerous and how catastrophic a time machine can be, he's still a scientist at heart and he needs to keep doing the science he wants to do. Do you guys think it was okay that he built another time machine after all the events of the, the trilogy up to that point? Yes, I mean, I'm gonna say, well, first of all, we wanna see him again, right? And so him building a time machine means he, he is alive and, and, and in the way that we understand that. Um, but it's also the movie is uh, is entirely in praise of science. I mean, the movie is itself made possible by advances in technology, like we talked about last week. 
And so this idea that a, a movie that is sponsored by innovative special effects is then going to turn around and wag the finger at, at the kind of scientific establishment that helped make these special effects seems kind of silly. So I, I like the idea that in the end, it's just progress is progress. There's going to be problems. But in the end, what's important is that we, we keep going forward and create these wonderful spectacles. I think the reason I had a challenge answering this question is I never fully accepted the fact that he came back with the train time machine because along the whole storyline, he's saying how bad it is to disrupt time. And I understand for Hollywood purposes, just like Tom said, we, the audience want to make sure he's okay. But when it comes down to it, I think it kind of contradicts a lot of what he was preaching the whole length of the trilogy. So it's, it's one of those things to say, uh, do what I say, not what I do. He's like, destroy it, destroy it, destroy it. Oh, you know what? I'm bored. I got a family now. We're good. So I, I, I do understand that this was a bit of Hollywood. It never sat right with me, the ending there with the train lifting off and flying into who knows where. But I enjoyed it and for the fact that it was concluding a wonderful story. See, I, I kind of agree with Nick um, in a sense that it does go against them. He must have used the phrase space-time continuum, you know, six or eight or ten times in that movie about how you shouldn't violate it. But I, I think um, turning the train into a time machine is absolutely within his character. He's, he may understand that messing with the space-time continuum could result in, you know, Back to the Future 2 again. Um, but, you know, given, I mean, you know, everything from how the guy makes breakfast to, you know, the time machine is based around science. Like they, they spent half the movie talking about Jules Verne's books. So I, I think the, the fact that he came back around there at the end, yeah, it's a little bit of a sappy kind of Hollywood, hopeful kind of ending, like the future is unwritten, et cetera. But I, I think it's absolutely and completely within his character to do that. And it's also embodied on the train. I mean, the train is the symbol of progress, right, in America. You know, that, that's what helps establish the industrial age. And it also allows us to move throughout the country for the first time. Um, and so, the, you know, the fact that the dock ends by making the train into the ultimate transportation machine, I think makes perfect sense. And he's gone green, you know, his steam is pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, there's like a steampunk thing there, you know, like, a, um, you know, that, that I kind of liked. I wonder why people don't dress up like Doc Brown and kind of steampunk convention cosplay things. Well, what I will say, too, and I'm not sure if this is going to come up later, but his use of the, let's call it steampunk for, for, for now, um, his use of technology, like even in the Wild West, he's got this big ornate machine and it's to make an ice cube. Like it's, it, I just love all that kind of use of what his knowledge is, but the rudimentary tools at his disposal. So that, you know, the, the time traveling uh, steam engine is just the next evolution of that. So we're going to give a point to everybody because uh, even though nobody wrote down exactly what I did, all right. everybody <laughs> did write down something that Doc said <laughs> after Marty asked him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next category is the other great mystery of the universe. It's time for question two. In Back to the Future 3, there is a scene where Marty and Doc are talking about knowing too much about the future. Doc brings up a car accident that will influence Marty's life. Right, 
after this conversation, the doc makes a big life decision. What decision does the doc make in this scene in the movie? Locked in. Same, locked in. Locked in. Mahoney, what do you have? Uh, so I'm not sure if this is right, but if memory serves, it was the conversation when they were in the graveyard and it's when he decides to send Marty back to 1885. I believe he decides at this point that he is not going back to 1985. I think, and again, I'm, I'm not 100%, but I, I, the only time I remember them like literally planting in the movie, oh, we can't know too much about our lives was the graveyard scene because he was wondering if he could like look himself up. And I believe that's where that dialogue may have happened. So this question was back in the old West and the decision that doc makes is that he will not bring Clara to the future. At one point he's kind of debating, he's going to go back to 1985. And one of the solutions is to bring Clara with them since Clara was supposed to go off the cliff anyway. So it actually might mend the timeline better than if she stayed in 1885. So at this point in the movie, Doc decides to follow his brain, not his heart, and leave Clara in 1885. Um, how do you guys think the movie dealt with your brain versus your heart from Doc's perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of doing both of those things, right? I mean, with, with Doc, Doc has to move from the brain to the heart. That's the journey we want him to make. And I, I agree with you, KJ. I think he goes through the greatest arc, arc of development. And he's, he's in the lead, and Marty kind of takes the secondary role. But with Marty, Marty has to go from the heart to the brain. He has to learn not to f follow his spleen when somebody calls him yellow or chicken or yellow-bellied chicken, you know, whatever it is. And so I think that you know, the movie kind of wants a... Uh, a balance between those those two sides of the equation. Yeah, I, I think uh, in the first two movies, I mean, Doc is sort of a one-dimensional character. I mean, not to say he's not entertaining and funny and all that, but he's, you know, science from morning until night, and 1.21 gigawatts, the whole thing. Um, and there was actually an interesting piece of trivia I read when I was, you know, kind of poking around for this. It, the, uh, the grave scene, uh, that I just got wrong. When they find his tombstone, uh, Marty says, Great Scott, and Doc says, uh, That's heavy, or something to that effect. Like they essentially flop. So I think it's really cool how in this movie, yeah, I mean, Doc does actually get a little depth of character and gets to, you know, play around a little bit as kind of the romantic lead in a movie, even though you wouldn't expect Christopher Lloyd to kind of do that sort of thing. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting, and I think Tom makes a really good point too that Marty does kind of sort of go the other direction. Like he's got to learn to think a little bit more as opposed to react emotionally. To to expand on that, Marty is almost the mentor and the guide in this one. He's like, oh no, we don't have time to go to the the festival, or oh we have to stay on track, or oh that's a distraction. Whereas in the prior movies, it's usually the doc reining Marty in to stay focused on their objective. Yeah, I, I mean, Marty also has to convince the doc a lot of times to, you know, let's get, like, listen, I'm, I'm real, I need help. And he needs to do that again at the beginning of this movie, 
right? When Mar Marty comes to the, the mansion and Doc has completely forgotten about it and Marty has to remind him, I'm still here. And the Doc calls him again, future boy, which is what he called him in the initial time travel journey back to 1955. So I, you know, I, I don't know if we can entirely say that Marty is this kind of um, uh, distracted person who, you know, is, is always going off the handle. He's actually, uh, he's actually fairly on on the team, right? He's he's ready to go. He's ready to get back to where he needs to go. There's just this one little chink in his armor, which is don't call him chicken, which is bizarre. But yeah, that that's about it. And it feels so forced. I mean, they needed it for plot points, but oh. Yeah, it, it's, it's engineered character development. Yeah, I agree. And, and even what I was saying uh, to Tom's point, I'm not saying that um, Marty McFly is just lost in the world. I just mean when it comes down to some distractions, they kind of flop on who's pulling the reins to get them back on target. But yeah, I actually thought you put it quite eloquently, uh, the difference between Doc's journey in this one versus Marty's. I thought that was perfect. All right. So at the end of the first round, everybody's got one point. Um, zero points were awarded for the second question, which may have been a little too specific. Okay, KJ. Well, we'll see what you have in store for us when we get back for round two after these brief messages. Previously on Marlowe's Spliced Crazed Lab Mystery. What's the case? My husband went missing two days ago. Why, he works for Splice Craze Lab. If you ever want to see your husband alive again, bring his super secret files to the main offices here at Jeans Jeans by midnight. I'll pack my trusty thirty-eight special and rescue your husband, Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet, Esquire. You don't want to go in there. It's his old friend Andre. Andre was living in the streets, suffering from a torrid addiction to investing in eco-friendly startups. Like so many before him, Andre had ended in the gutter, shaking with an old need for carbon reduction. They've heard about Jeans Jeans. People on the street, they say things. It's a scary place. Experiments, gene alteration, irresponsible energy consumption. You don't want to go in there, Marlow, man. You might not like what you find. Marlow shakes his hand away and passes through the door, walking into a dark, black lobby, populated with dark leather chairs. He hears a knock on the glass. He turns around and looks back at Andre. Good luck. He sees Andre mouth before Andre sneaks away, dropping into the blackness. Marla walks into the center of the room. In the far corner, the doors to an elevator open. A very short man approaches, a man bald and albino white, wearing green glasses and an entirely purple outfit. Walking with a brown handmade wooden cane, he approaches Marlowe very, very slowly, the sound of the cane resonating throughout the dark room. Finally, he reaches Marlowe, the shaved head glistening in the little light that is inside this cavernous room. He smiles, a toothless grin. Hello, Mr. Marlowe. Are you Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet, Esquire? 
I have the IP in exchange for your life. No, Marlow. Sir Julius, I'm afraid, couldn't be here. But I have a far more interesting prospect. And we're back for round two. KJ, turning it back over to you. All right. And for round two, we are going to expand the questions and answers to include the entire trilogy. We are no longer locked in to Back to the Future 3. We are spanning the whole trilogy. The four categories are Newton, Franklin, Edison, and Einstein. Hill Valley, I Hardly Knew Ye. History Repeats Itself. And McFly, McFly, anybody home? So Tom, which category would you like to start with? I'd like to start with Newton, Edison, Einstein. Franklin. Franklin, Edison, yeah. Einstein. Mr. Okay. Benjamin Franklin. All right. It better be a question about Ben Franklin. That's what I want. In the play Hamilton. No, I'm just kidding. It's time for question three. Here's the question. So this question is subjective. What do you think is Doc's greatest accomplishment? I'm locked in, but very nervous about my answer. Locked in. Yeah, I'm locked in. Uh, so I wanted my answer to be the, uh, the Rube Goldberg breakfast machine from the third movie. Um, or actually the Rube Goldberg breakfast machine from the first movie. Because um, really, I, I would gladly have either of those making breakfast when I wake up in the morning. But I, I think his greatest accomplishment is kind of what we've been discussing so far. The actual character development he takes in the third movie. Um, realizing that uh, obviously inventing a time machine out of the DeLorean a time machine out of a train using 1885 technology and, you know, the ice cube machine, Nick mentioned all that. I, I think, you know, the man's got science then, but I think as far as his greatest accomplishment goes is actually realizing there's more to life than just uh, inventing things, finding a woman that he likes, falls in love, has two kids, um, that sort of thing. So that's my final answer. I'm going to go more the sciencey route, and I'm going to say that Doc Brown by virtue of his space-time continuum, has discovered how quantum mechanics and general relativity go together. This is a question that has bedeviled physicists for the last 100 years plus, and Doc Brown, by being able to travel back in time, has to have solved that problem. And so he has put to, to rest a 100-year plus debate. So I'm also similar to Mahoney going to lean heavy onto the subject matter that we just explored um, and the character development side. He conquered everything that could be conquered in his world of science. But the one thing that was outside of his grasp, the ability to, and, and his ability to comprehend was that of loving another person on, and literally love at first sight. So I would say he figured out all the science stuff, but his de character development arc to really figure out what he truly wanted, not the ability to go through time, but find the right person to spend the rest of his life for, regardless of what time period they spend it in. These are all great answers, but I think the two points are going to go to Tom. I, I think the doc had a lot of great accomplishments um, as we've been listing. 
I think his character development was important. Um, and his ability to realize he can love other people. Um, but I don't know how much agency he had with that. It was love at first sight. It was something that kind of happened to him, not something he did. Whereas the flux capacitor, wow. Now that I say that out loud, that kind of happened to him too as well, didn't it? He fell off the toilet. He wasn't doing math. He hit his head. Hit his head. So now that I think about it, how much did the doc do? Well, he still did it. <laughs> I mean, he still made it. I mean, the, the idea that, so I guess we get into like free will versus determinism. The, the idea that, you know, our, our thoughts are sort of determined by our biological makeup is, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how strong this movie's defending that. I, I just thought it was kind of like on the nose to say, what was the greatest invention in a movie about a time machine to say it was a time machine? But then again, that kind of fits the path of this movie. So I was trying to go for something that was more relevant to that specific character. Oh, uh, and, and he spends, you know, the beginning of the third movie, you know, they, they, when they tell him he's going to meet her at the train station and he realizes it's the woman he's supposed to fall in love with, he decides he's not going to meet her at the train station. So he actively tries to avoid this thing that, I mean, really it wasn't brought up in the first two movies. I mean, there was no hint of a relationship for him other than his dog and Marty. Um, so he, he actively tries to avoid, and if it wasn't, you know, uh, for the, the snakes scaring the horses, which then caused them to cause the cart to run, which caused him to have to save her. I mean, I guess that's kind of the falling off the toilet while hanging a clock moment, right? All of these things sort of happened to him, but both, you know, the ability or the desire to put together the flux capacitor in a time machine. And then the desire once he meets her to actually realize, okay, you know, science isn't the end all be all and realize there's more to it. I, I think there's a little bit of determinism, as Tom said, followed by, you know, you've got to make the free will to actually follow through on those choices. This is a little bit of a tangent, but it just made me uh, remember when we were talking about why he came back and all that. Yes, he may have wanted to see Marty, but he actually says his excuse for coming back was to pick up his dog, Einstein. So he decided to make a giant uh, steam engine time machine to pick up his pup. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he also at the end, like we said before, says the future is not yet written. And I, I think that sponsors a, a kind of free will idea. And it's not to say that there isn't, that free will and determinism have to be completely at odds. I mean, you can say there are factors that are indicating in which direction you're supposed to go. But I, I think the movie is ultimately, by, by being able to change history via these linchpin moments, I think the movie ultimately is endorsing that you have the freedom to alter the world how you see fit. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think this movie is a giant commercial for free will, right? You know, even if you know necessarily how your future is going to shake out, you still have the ability to avoid that car race or, you know, not let somebody taunt you by calling you a chicken or, you know, it, uh, keep your son from helping a criminal so that, you know, he doesn't get arrested. I mean, any one of the number of things that they change, it's basically telling you that, listen, even if your future is quote unquote written, you can always change it before you get there. All right, let's move on to the next question. The remaining categories are Hill Valley, I Hardly Knew Ye, History Repeats Itself, and McFly, McFly, anybody home? Nick, which category would you like? I think I'll go with Hill Valley, I Hardly Knew Ye. It's time for question four. 
How many versions of Hill Valley's Town Square do we see in the entire trilogy? I did not look this up anywhere. I just counted. So my count may be off. But for the sake of this question, we need to have seen the version of the Hill Valley Town Square on screen. If we did not see it, we're not counting it. So how many versions of Hill Valley's Town Square do we see in this trilogy? I think I'm locked in. I think I'm also locked in. Doing some calculus over here. Some four-dimensional math. Yeah. Okay, lock in. All right. Tom, how many versions of Hill Valley do we see? We see total five. I'm also going to agree with five, but I have a question mark. Well, we're either all right or all wrong, because I also came up with five. Wow. All right. So I only came up with four. So let me name my four, and then um, hopefully you guys are all right, and there's a fifth. Going in the order that we see them in the movies, as opposed to chronological by timeline. The first Hill Valley we see is in 1985. Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! All right, that's one. The next one we see is the 1955 Hill Valley, where we have the famous skateboard chase. The next one that I have is the 1985 Biff Hill Valley. Right, his casino is in Hill Valley, I had assumed. They're, they kind of walk up. All those bikers and stuff are in the square. No, you disagree, Tom? Go for it. The next Hill Valley we see is 2015. Yep, and then 85. Then uh, 1985 I am missing 2015 from my life. All right, so from my list. All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> you need a little 2015 <laughs> in your life. All right, so going through again. So the original 85, the 55, the 2015, the Biff 85... And then what do you guys say in the last one is? 1885. 1885. All right. Points for everybody. So I just wanted to bring up, I really liked how they repeated things in the, um, in the, in the movies. And, and that town square was one of, the, one of the great anchors that brought us through the different time periods. And maybe we've already talked to this to death, but. Yeah, the, the question, by the way, the question mark when my answer was the Biff timeline, I assumed that was his recreation of the town square. So that's why I was like a little question mark, but I believe it is his version of the time square. Town square, excuse me. The, the casino is where the clock tower was. That's the idea that Biff has eliminated history from, you know. And we had mentioned in uh, the previous episode that this town square is actually used in lots of different uh, movies and TV shows. Um, I think there's 47 different movies starting with an act of murder in 1948 that used this town square as their set. Yeah, I really think it's it's neat to see the evolution of the town, but not in order to. So like we see what it becomes, we see what it could have become in 1985, then we see where it all started. So there is something kind of enjoyable about seeing the humble roots and, and seeing it develop and even the alternate timelines of what it could have been. Yeah, and what's interesting, what did you say, 47? That it's in 47 different? Yeah, looking at the Wikipedia page and counting, it was about 47 different Ooh. movies. Yeah, I, I mean, it is a movie about movies. And I think Back to the Future Part 3 is more firmly 
about a movie about movies. And it's especially sort of Back to the Future 3 via the various references, which we'll, we'll go into later. Um, it, it's placing itself in the canon of movies. And so by recreating a or borrowing from a cinematic past, not just in the town square, but in other ways, it's sort of including itself in this conversation about the history of Hollywood film. Funny enough, actually, they don't use that set in Back to the Future 3, right? They're, we don't. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The golden new one. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to level the lot and make it a Western. <laughs> All right. Two points for everybody on that last one because you guys are much better counters than I am. Um, on to the next question. The remaining categories are history repeats itself and McFly. McFly, anybody home? Mahoney, what are you thinking? I think I'll go with history repeats itself. It's time for question five. Name parallel scenes that appear in the third movie and their counterparts from the previous films. This question is going to get out of hand. So if we start naming five or six or more each, we may cut this question early and just hand out points like we're on a, an Oprah show or something. Um, let's start with Tom. Him waking up next to Leah Thompson, who's playing now his great-great-grandmother, and saying, I had a terrible dream. Yes. Mm -hmm. What's creepy about that is, I guess we've all had dreams where we've woken up, but we weren't awake. And to have that actually happen to you multiple times would be really creepy. Three times. Yeah. And every time it's your mother, and two of those times, there's something sexual about it so i think if crispin glover actually signed on to these other movies he probably would have played the father role there because if you think about it it's michael j fox playing the father and the mother was his mother so that just seems kind of out of whack just throwing that out there the genetics don't really work unless they're Habsburgs. uh so i'll keep it in the family uh, and he once again, well, in this movie, uh, meets a distant relative as an infant, um, as he did in the first movie. Well, this is a pretty obvious one. They replaced chicken with yella. What are you, yella? The scene where um, Marty is in the saloon and Mad Dog Tannen comes in. We've seen that in the first and second one. Yep, the saloon's the cafe. The bully comes in. Sure. Uh, I, I think the elephant in the room, obviously, Biff and Menor. <laughs> yes, indeed. The use of Menor in this film was very well placed. Yeah, these are all been really good. Uh, let's go free for all. Anybody's got them, throw them out. You're all getting points. This is great. The way the scene is edited when Buford Tannen is hit in the face. There's a, a kind of three-part cut that mirrors the same edit that uh, happens when George McFly hits Biff in 1955 version B. Uh, the scene where the, um, the marshal is taking the firearms from Buford and his gang, and you realize the marshal is actually the principal from the first couple of movies, um, and then he turns to his son and talks about discipline, like he's training the future principal of Hill Valley High School. Future boy. Doc calls him Future Boy and closes the door on him again. So I had mentioned it earlier, but in the third movie and the first movie, I mean, he had a callback to his Rube Goldberg breakfast mm. machine in the first movie. 
where he makes himself breakfast. Yep, yep. Almost shot for shot. Yep. Um, and then the other one that I thought of, it's a little, it's different thematically in the movies, but in the first movie, he's on the skateboard, you know, kind of being drugged behind the Jeep as he goes to school. And then in the third movie, he's being drugged by a rope from a horse. So it's for a different reason, but he's still being drugged through the town square, basically. Yeah, I, I'd even say in the first one, it's the skateboard. The second one's the hoverboard. And then this one, it, it gets kind of dark. He's being dragged by that horse, but it's that same, the same idea. Yep. When he goes to different time periods, he's always criticized for his clothes. When he goes into the saloon in Back to the Future 3, they all make fun of him for his cowboy outfit. And when he goes back into, which one was it? It was, I'm trying to think if it was, no, no, it was the 1955. She's talking to him about his crazy underwear because they haven't seen anything like that. Like his clothes look very foreign to him, yeah. to, to the mother role. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I'd even say, um, yeah, they make fun of him for his cowboy outfit um, in 85, in 1885. It's very similar to how they keep asking him if he just jumped ship, if he was from the Navy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That was, mm -hmm. I couldn't mm -hmm. remember. There was another yep. one in the cafe and I couldn't remember exactly <laughs> what the clothing was, but it was his vest. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, an orange vest. But again, it kind of keeps recurring, his clothes. Could we consider the, um, the the dance a recreation of the first one? That might be mm. stretching it a little bit um, because it isn't a shot-for-shot -shot recreation. A lot of this movie mm. is based upon, let's do the exact same shots we did in the first one to create <laughs> this. It's, it's self-making nostalgia, right? Self-generating mm. nostalgia. So I, I don't know if the dance qualifies. Yeah, but the, the movie is, I mean, to KJ's point or, and to the point of the question, I think the movie is is recreating itself over and over again in order to um, b become more memorable, I think. I think it's kind of in love with its, <laughs> with its own success, and so it, it replicates itself. Yeah, I, I, I think that dance seems a bit of a stretch. Um, if either Marty or the Doc, like if the Doc found a set of bagpipes and then got that, party cooked cooking like that Marty had be, done yeah i think that would have been um a step further by the way do you guys think the doc can dance like marty says oh yeah doc can dance but he can dance in that style yeah he fit right in with like think about it if you went back to 1885 and you didn't know like they're he, he, he blended in with the rest of them so i think that means he is nimble enough to adjust and adapt to what the audience is doing it's also a particular dance that he knows how to do Mm, whether he's true. brilliant at it is is maybe beside the point <laughs> yeah i mean he adapted pretty quickly what was it eight months i guess he was there so between he learned that dance he learned how to ride a horse he learned how to shoe horses i mean he picked up a lot of stuff in just eight months i'm glad mahoney just brought up the riding a horse bit because this is when you start like picking at the movie how is Marty proficient on horseback? I, I mean, said that exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and not only is he proficient, there's a scene where he's riding literally bareback. He doesn't even have a saddle on. So, like, he is really good at horseback riding. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the choice of the Western is, is not accidental, right? Apparently, in the first film when they were making it, they asked Michael J. Fox where what time period he would like to explore had he the choice. And he said the Old West. But the, the Old West we're getting here is one that is facilitated through other movies, right? I mean, I don't know, has, has anybody ever heard of the book, um, The Not-So-Wild-Wild-West? No, I have not. It's a, a book, um, 
it's like an academic, whatever. It's a, it's a book about the actual West, you know, this period. And what it makes, it makes the argument that um, basically, you know, though you had a shootout at the, the OK Corral or whatnot, basically the wild, wild West wasn't that wild. It was mostly people went out there, they kind of established, even though there was no kind of governing structures, they sort of just figured it out on their own and it was generally peaceful. And this idea of the the Wild West that we see in this movie isn't really made from history. It's made from John Ford, from Leone, from Howard Hawks. It It is a time travel back into an older Hollywood genre, which makes sense, right? Because when they time travel back, where does he go? He travels right into a movie screen in order to go back in time in this version of 1955. And so, you know, once we go back into 1885, we're no longer interested in kind of the, the archetypes of a particular decade. Now we're interested in the archetypes of a cinematic experience. I always did enjoy that scene too with the Native Americans. Like it, it really was a, a cool, he's like, oh, don't worry. The name, the, 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 well, he actually says Indians dating this movie, but the Native Americans won't be there. And he runs right into the, 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 the tribe. Uh, going back to what Tom was saying, I think the typical Wild West might have been the Seamus McFly character where they're going out, they're settling the unknown, they're getting their plot of land, and they're just trying to make a life out of it. It wasn't all gunslingers. It, it was mostly not gunslingers. It yeah. was mostly, I mean, this is, this is the, I, mean, I wasn't there, but this is the argument the book is making is that it, it's, it's what we think of as the wild, wild west is entirely a Hollywood production. Yeah. Well, he does choose the name Clint Eastwood and re they reference, you know, what a fistful of dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The, the fistful of dollars yeah. thing yep. with the, uh, the, yep. The, yep. the vest on. Um, but even, even beyond that, the, the movie is just populated with references to other films. So you have, you know, a, a, a fistful of dollars. Um, you also have. I, I, this is my reading of the locomotive scene. Does anybody know the movie The General? No. no, no. The General is a silent film from 1926 or 27, a Buster Keaton movie. And it had the most expensive scene in the history of silent films, which was a, a Confederate art guy is trying to block a Union train. And so he um, breaks the tracks so that the Union train, when driving over the tracks, falls into a canyon. Um, and the train in that shot looks exactly like the train in Back to the Future 3. And so you have a fistful of dollars, you have, um, you, you know, you have the general, uh, and I'm sure there's, there's other movie references that aren't coming right to my mind here. Um, but then you also have references to the original Back to the Future. And so what ends up happening is Back to the Future is sort of establishing itself as, you know, one of the movies that we think of when we think of classic movies. Right, it's, it's actually enlisting via these kind of illusions. Um, it's enlisting itself amongst these films. Uh, points for everybody. That's two points, two points, two points. Um, and we're moving on to the final question in which the category is McFly, McFly, anybody home? It's time for question six. Who is your favorite McFly? Tom, who's your favorite McFly? I'm going to go with Seamus. And my, my reason for this, so Seamus McFly, for our, our 
listeners, is the great-great-grandfather of Marty McFly, also played by Michael J. Fox. The reason I, I select Seamus is that this movie, the, this trilogy has a dearth of kind of father figures. Uh, they, they just either they're not there or they're kind of not very good at their job as, as fathers. Um, and Seamus McFly is the first ancestor to someone who offers important and needed advice to a, a descendant. So he becomes kind of like the first quote unquote father figure or the first ancestor that can give good advice to the next generation. You know, I, I really thought long and hard about this and I could convince myself of many different McFlies. Um, for example, his father in the 1955 arc um, is a strong candidate. But when it comes down to it, if someone just asked me that on the street, like, who's your favorite McFly in Back to the Future? It's cliche, but the answer is Marty McFly. And one of the reasons specifically, and, and you brought this up in, in the prior episodes, even though I pushed back and, and gave you a little hard time in a joking manner, it is quite understandable that your point about Marty, be, Marty McFly being the center of this universe or timeline I, I do agree with that. You know, my argument for the dog was not quite genuine, <laughs> uh, although he does come back for Einstein. But really, his charisma, his, his the way of playing the role in the variety of different time periods, Michael uh, J. Fox's um, portrayal of Marty is really endearing, and there's just so many good elements of his character. So I would say while he is the star of the movie, I would say Marty McFly is my favorite McFly. So I actually agree with Tom. I think uh, Seamus McFly is the, um, the best McFly of the series. I think it's easier actually to probably pick a least favorite McFly um, or there, there's a, a vast quantity of least favorite McFly. So that makes this um, question difficult. And again, my, my answer isn't solely because, again, you get to see Michael J. Fox do an Irish accent sort of poorly. Um, but I, I, he's the, the character that essentially cements Marty's character on, right? He's the little angel on his shoulder sort of thing that says, listen, you know, you don't have to do what they tell you to do just because they call you chicken or yellow uh, or, you know, you look like an idiot in front of these bar flies. You don't even know anyway. So he, he's the, you know, the, the borrowed Tom's phrase. He is the father figure. He's the, the guy who, who gets Marty over the hump finally. And, you know, then at the end of the movie, we finally see his influence when, you know, he doesn't take up uh, needles on the car chase, right? So, and essentially uncements what had been his 2015 future with the car accident. So I, I, I think I got to go to Shane's. This is an interesting question because it was phrased what is your favorite McFly, not who is the best McFly? So the reason I chose, even though he is the main showrunner, he is the favorite, because as far as I know, no one says, oh, you gotta see the Back to the Future trilogy. Seamus McFly is amazing. The idea of favorite isn't necessarily, it depends on how you look at favorite. So a favorite could be someone who you see yourself in or who you would most like to be. Often like the lead is someone who, a lead in a movie or a lead in anything, would be somebody with some sort of deficiency that we don't imagine ourselves to have, right? Because then the, the lead has to like get over that deficiency to, to become a new person, end of film. And so having a favorite 
for me is often like the um the person i can see myself in and and I'm as blind to my own flaws as everybody else in the world is. And so, you know, you look for that character who's a little more, um, a little more stable. Um, Well, so great answers. Um, But I think it's going to Nick. I, I, I liked how Nick used Marty as the center of the universe as the reason why that was his favorite McFly. Not trying to make any comments on anybody here on the show. Um, But yeah, two points to Nick. Which brings the total for this week to Tom, seven points, Nick, seven points, and Mahoney, five points. Well, we find ourselves at the end of the trilogy for Back to the Future. The final tallies are in order of least to most. KJ locked in a solid 13 points. The guest contributed 14. I came up one point higher at 15. And it looks like Tom, who thoroughly loved every single movie of the trilogy, came in at 19 points to become our Back to the Future trilogy champion. Congratulations, Tom. Yeah, thank you. I I think I enjoy these movies the least out of all of us, ironically enough. Which, which, you know, maybe inspired me to to do more kind of research on them in order to to get through it. But yes, thank you very much. I I accept my crown with dignity and may blood run in the streets. For the record, there are no physical prizes or awards associated with this trilogy champion. But blood will run in the streets. (laughs) On that note, let's take a quick break before we come back for Movie Rant. We'll be right back. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of the podcast in which a group of B-side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website, YouTube channel, or where you normally listen to Talking Pictures Trivia to find the B-side where we talk about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. Here's a quick sample. Hello, and welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom, your host today, and today on B-Side we'll be discussing Back to the Future Part 3. In this show today, what we're going to try and do is look at these films, especially Back to the Future Part 3, but probably the whole trilogy, and possibly the Terminator, through two main lenses. The first one we're going to discuss is nostalgia. The second is going to be identity and the fracturing of identity, and how that relates to media construction. So, let's dive in. Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com our YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to hear more on the B-side. And we're back. So we've spent the last three weeks talking a lot of Back to the Future, but I'm sure we can squeeze out a few more nuggets. Anyone have any further thoughts on this trilogy or this movie? It's time for Movie Ren. Yeah, I I work with a bunch of engineers and... um, Oftentimes we'll bring up pop culture things and one time we spent way more time than we probably should have asking and trying to answer this question. 
what is the maximum amount of time DeLoreans on the planet in any point in time covered by the movies? So if you take a slice of a time frame like 1955, how many DeLoreans are present? Right. So at, you know, whatever, 10 o'clock in the morning, 1955, we know there are X amount of DeLoreans on this planet right now. I think it's never more than two. That's in 1955. So when Doc is sending Marty back in 1955, there's another DeLorean nearby, right? So there's two DeLoreans there. There's never more than that because you don't, you only have one DeLorean in the future. You only have ever one DeLorean in, no, you, you, you do have two DeLoreans in um, 1985B. Straight up, we can say there's at least two. Okay, so can we find a case where there's more than two? Because I can give an example in 1955, there was one buried in a mine and there was the one that came back. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, what I meant was when he Actually, said- Actually, wait, there's three. Where's the third? One buried in a mine, one that he just left with, but he came back with one that then gets sent back to 19, uh, 1885. There's, oh, at the end of Back to the Future 2, right? There is three. There's, there's one three. flying in the air. There's the one going back in time. And there's one in, in the, the mine. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. don't, don't forget while you're talking about those three, at the same time, Biff stole the DeLorean and has it where he goes. Remember, he brings the Almanac back to 1955. Yeah. So we might be up to four. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that, we, we came to the same conclusion. I, I was kind of surprised. There, are, I think there are at least four DeLoreans mm -hmm. the day that the clock tower yeah. was struck in, <laughs> in Hill Valley all at the same time. I just thought that was kind of a funny, like, what just like counting them. Well, on, on a, a related topic to the trilogy, I will say, and I, I, usually, I kept forgetting to bring this up in the introduction, this was the first time... I ever saw a connection of movies, of sequels, that was like blatant. So from the first movie to be continued, the second movie, part three's coming, and they literally do an advertisement for part three coming. I had never seen that before where it was like, sometimes you get a sequel, okay, it's coming. But these ones, they literally take the first few minutes of the end of the last movie and make it the beginning of the next movie. And it just follows through. So that was the first time in my life that I had ever witnessed this blatant connection yeah it's kind of funny they have that trailer for the third movie at the end of the second one and my understanding is trailers used to trail movies that's how they used to advertise future movies in the theater is they would trail the main movie um, as opposed to being beforehand so that's kind of funny that this also harkens back to the older movies with a literal trailer yeah it's, it's always yeah yeah i mean it's always kind of harkening back to the old movies like we talked about before um, what, what I like about, or maybe not what I like, but what I, what I read it as doing is it, it's sort of, um, it's a kind of a movie about movies. As I said before, it kind of is made out of the stuffing of other films, um, be it the, the general or, uh, or even non-Westerns like Taxi Driver. There's a Taxi Driver scene in it when he's, you know, when he's standing in front of the mirror, you know, like pulling out the guns and, and whatnot. Um, and it seems to, to move from uh, a reference to 
historical periods and putting historical periods in the mode of nostalgia. So remember the 50s, it's it's this great nostalgic time. And, the, and it moves from there to remember Back to the Future. What a great nostalgic movie. <laughs> and it, it becomes like kind of, it, it goes from creating or replicating a fake world, a, a simulation that never existed, to replicating and simulating itself in order to, uh, you know, in order to give us that experience. I think this is like the poster child of a Hollywood movie in the 1980s. Like it just encompasses it all. Yeah, and, and borrowing, um, what's it, the, the three barflies who give Marty grief whenever he's in the saloon. I know one of them is Harry Carey Jr. And I forget the other two guys' names, but they're in like, they're famous barflies and drunks in Westerns. Um, you have the uh, the guy who gives Marty the cult is the, the deputy from uh, uh, Blazing Saddles. It's the same actor. Um, oh, I didn't so catch that reference, but it's yeah, like yeah. bringing in these actors from other Westerns, right, to kind of, you know, create essentially a, a pure cinematic Western as opposed to, you know, trying to recreate their own movies. I know for a fact that one barfly, he's got down that like Western accent. I, I'm sure I've seen another Western that he was in and had the same kind of sound. Yeah, I think that's Harry Carey. Yeah, like it's just that iconic. Yeah, this is uh, Pat Buttram and Dub Taylor, I think, were the other two. And they've been in, like, yeah, a, a ton of, of other Western films. Talking about the Western characters, I particularly like the actor Thomas F. Wilson, who in the earlier versions was Biff Tannen and Griff Tannen, I thought he did a really good job with uh, Buford Mad Dog Tannen. It was a definitely, a, definitely a different skill set than he used in the other movies where he was just a bully. And even his walk and when he shoots uh, Marty and, and looks over him, like just the whole thing, the draw, like he just had a good vibe about him. I, I thought he did a really good job as the uh, gunslinging villain in, in the Old West. Yeah, he disappears right into Buford Tannen. He does, kind of like we were talking about in the Monty Python episode, how people disappear. I mean, this one, there was a little bit more of a costume, but I, I think if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't have even realized it's the same actor. He did look different. Like the other, the old Biff, uh, the old timer Biff and the younger one, and even Griff, I mean, that's just spitting image. But he did look a little bit more rugged and haggard in, in that role. So I just, I just wanted to bring that up. I think... He did a, a great job throughout the trilogies, but specifically was one of the uh, key key actors that I enjoyed their performance in Back to the Future 3. Oh, I was just going to say I, uh, a, a big round of applause for, for ZZ Top for actually appearing in the movie. Um, I mean, I know Huey uh, Lewis in the news, Power of Love from the first movie is probably the iconic Back to the Future song, um, or I guess you could argue Johnny B. Good. Um, but, you know, Power of Love is my phone ringtone, so I'll stand with that one. But I thought it was really cool that in addition for the supplying music for the movie, they actually appeared on stage. Yeah, and also Flea. Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers is some, for some reason, in this movie. <laughs> what is his role? He is, he's Nichols, or is that his name? Needles. Needles, the guy who raises him. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up Needles, because I've seen these movies a million times, and for some reason... This is the only time I connected that the end sequence where he's going in the race was the same guy who made him lose his job in Back to the Future 2. I don't know why it just like never connected to me that it was Needles. So Needles knew how to push his buttons 
in high school and later ruined his career. Well, Marty ruined his own career, but led to instigating the ruining of his career uh, later. So I don't know how I never made that connection after all these years of watching this movie. He's also one of the greatest bass players of the last 30 years. So Needles really does get around. Do you guys think they needed that scene for closure for the trilogy where we see Marty grew? Did, do you, I, yes. Do you do think yeah. so? I thought it yeah, felt a little it. out of place. I thought we were done. The, you know, the train goes off. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you need the scene to know that he doesn't get in the, get in the accident. I mean, it's an awkward scene, right? It, it doesn't seem to flow very well. But in terms of, if you don't have that scene, then you have to assume that, that Marty has grown without any evidence that he's grown. Yeah, the future's unwritten. I, I think I would have left it. To be honest with you, I think that scene flows better than the flying train time machine, but I know why we all enjoy it, okay? But I think when it comes from like movie design, just like Tom said, that actually brought closure. Whereas the, t- you know, the flying train, steam engine, time machine just was, you know, for the fans. But you, you need, I mean, the, the flying steam engine time machine is, it's so important to kind of like the themes of the movie. I mean, we need, to, we need, yes, we need to see Marty grow up and we need to know that Marty's not going to get in an accident and he can still play music, right? We need to have hope for Marty. But I mean, the, the, the train though is like the great 19th century symbol of progress, of advancement. Um, and, and this movie is just saying we are working in that tradition. Right. You know, it's, it's not just we're not just entertainers or whatnot. We're entertainers who are made possible by this kind of this kind of great idea of, of American advancement. Um, and it's you know, that that ties into the, the Western, too, which is the American genre. And yes, Leone was an Italian and they like Italians made a lot of Westerns. Um, but, you know, the, the person you think of there is still Clint Eastwood, is, is still this kind of this this American and I think that's what this, this movie is kind of forcefully saying with that flying train. It's like, you know, um, we're working within this tradition and we are doing it in a spectacular way. My last thoughts on the Back to the Future trilogy are that I'm glad that this was made so that we can have an engaging dialogue on a flying steam engine time machine. There is no other way this would have come up organically in our conversations. So for that element alone, I'm, I'm glad everything uh, was created in the manner it was. So I, I dispute that we couldn't possibly come up with a flying steam engine train time traveling device <laughs> w- without uh, without Robert Zemeckis. With uh, the few drink, a few drinks in or what? Oh, I, absolutely, I'm sure. Um, and I'm, I'm waiting for the fourth one where we get the time traveling boat. But um, I, I, I would prefer a, a dirigible of some sort. I, I was thinking maybe a submarine. I mean, we, we've got air, we've got land. I, I think now it's time we go, go to the ocean for our time traveling vehicles. To be fair, they've all already crossed off um, uh, time traveling um, hot tubs, actually. That, that genre has already been satisfied. It's satisfied, and then they made a sequel for no good reason. <laughs> Which was not satisfying. <laughs> No, but I, I think that whole that whole end scene there between the train and the, the you know Marty refusing the race was just kind of a, uh, a moral of the story kind of you know I'm going to hit you over the head with a mallet and make sure you understand that the the premise of this movie or the premise of the trilogy as a whole is to tell you like look you know even if the future is you know quote unquote written even if you could travel to the future and see what you look like in 
10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, you know, you have the power to change it. And if you didn't get it for the first, you know, six hours that we showed this to you, we're just going to hit you over the head by having Martin refuse this race and make sure that it's really cemented in when you walk out of the theater. It may be, I, I think if you're going to do the Marty's yellow or Marty responds to being called yellow in the way he does, you need that scene. If you just want to tell the story of, of Back to the Future, you probably don't even need that stuff, right? I mean, you could just, you could just kind of leave it out and do, um, he goes back to 1955 where yellow is never brought up. Um, in the future, there's a sports almanac nonsense that, that that's driving the plot. And in this one, he has to get back to the future, you know, get back to the future again. I think if we just cut it, we could, you know, the, the movies would still be fine. <laughs> Because again, I don't think that's the theme. I, I don't think the theme is like, um, you know, we have to like grow as people and, and be the better versions of ourselves. I mean, I think that's the theme of like any movie, right? That's, you know, that's your Saturday morning cartoon thing that's going on. You know, I, I think the, the, the theme of the movie is, or the movies is the kind of how we create nostalgia or how we make, how we make the past in the way we want the past to be. So that the past becomes something that we can use to our own purposes in the present, as opposed to this collection of historical events, facts, people that we can look back through a dark glass. Well, not only was that a fun episode, but this whole trilogy has been a blast. I'm glad we had a chance to explore it and have some interesting guests to join us along the way. Once again, Tom, congratulations for winning the trilogy and being the Back to the Future trilogy champion. I'd also like to thank Mahoney for joining us today. Is there anything you'd like our audience to know about? Um, I guess the only thing I could possibly plug, a uh, charity that I'm on the board of directors for here in Bucks County, the Opportunity Council, great organization that helps uh, people in poverty uh, kind of find their way to self-sustainment. So. If anybody's ever interested in making charitable donations, looking for an organization that helps with housing and food, and education, jobs, etc., um, just check out the Bucks County Opportunity Council. Is it regional? Do they just? Uh... It's all. It's only in Bucks County. So they okay. there's an office like in Doylestown, which is the seat, and then we have satellite offices in the okay. lower and upper Bucks. But that's good though, because you can actually like see your efforts at a local level. Yeah, I mean, literally, it's um, yeah local people getting jobs in local places. It's providing food to, you know, there's local um, once a week in, in one of the parts of Box, there's actually a tractor trailer. They park with a bunch of fruits and vegetables that people who can't afford that stuff can come pick it up. Wow. Like it, it's all kinds of stuff actually for the local, you know, the community. Yeah, nice. I, li I like that it's like, you can actually help your surrounding communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Sounds great, Mahoney. Sounds like a great cause. Uh, do you have, uh, is there a website or anything? Yeah, the website for the Opportunity Council, bcoc.org, or again, if you Google Bucks County Opportunity Council. Okay, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. Thanks to our fortuitous editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge IMDB, which is a great resource for our movie information for these episodes. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's recommendation, which is me, from 1984, The Terminator.
See you then. Ding, 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 ding.